This is Mission.org. It's been very interesting over the last two, three years to see that realization that brands aren't monolithic. They're not just there for the multitude of people, but if you can serve people who are typically underserved, you'll still appear to that core group, but you're actually helping people more across the board and you're creating more accessible services. The world is definitely changing quite a bit. You don't have to look very far to see that. Culture seems to be changing so much faster than corporations can even keep up with. But in the end, there's one thing that doesn't really change, and that's trying to get your message to the individual. Focusing on smaller groups of people or even trying to speak one-to-one is still a very powerful way to market. And that's something that's getting even easier to scale. On today's episode, I have an incredible guest whose ultimate goal is to create paradigm-shifting, impact-driven digital and physical design that breaks new ground for clients and contributes to positive systematic change around the planet. His name is Nick Delamar, and he's the managing director and head of design at Fjord Design, which is part of Accenture Interactive. This man is really pushing the boundaries of design and marketing and how brands interact with customers. He's really got his finger on the pulse of where things are going and how companies can really improve the customer experience no matter where you're located. Honestly, I can't wait to get into this one, so let's just go for it. So let's just have a little fun here. We like, we're going to kick off with the lightning round, just kind of fun questions, get to know Nick. First question, by the way, for those of you tuning in who don't know, this podcast is sponsored by Salesforce. Salesforce really brings marketing and collaboration together. If you want to learn more, go to salesforce.com forward slash marketing. We love our family at Salesforce. Okay. First question, Nick, here we go. Texting or talking? Uh, it's contextual. If I want to really connect with somebody, I'll talk. But otherwise, I'm a fan of just texting for the fast answer, for sure. What do you love and appreciate about yourself? I think the thing that I appreciate most about myself is I am like intensely curious. So I tend to go down rabbit holes. So I'm like, uh, yeah, curiosity is the is the thing that I appreciate the most. Uh, you share that one with me as well, my friend. I love that. Favorite day of the week? I think that's probably Thursday in the pandemic. We have been living in a world of Wednesdays, it feels like, but Thursday at least is the promise of a weekend. Even if we're not doing things on the weekend, it's there. Okay. Favorite city in the US besides the one you live in? I've spent the last 20 some odd years in San Francisco. Last year and a half, I've been a lot in sort of the suburbs of Honolulu. As I think about it, I love industrial Northern cities. And so I'll go with like a Detroit or something like that because it has like, I mean, it kind of has the equivalent of Roman ruins and they're figuring it out. And there's a, uh, and it's a, a place under constant development and rebirth. And I really appreciate that. I appreciate that answer. I just got back from Detroit just three weeks ago. I was at a wedding there and I hadn't been to Detroit in five years. And when I went downtown, I mean, I don't know if you've been there recently. I haven't been there in two or three years. Oh my gosh. I mean, the entire downtown area was like, wow, incredible development. So I love that you referenced that. It, it was a magical time that we had a delightful weekend in Detroit. So going back to D-Town, good answer. Okay, this one's a, this is a serious question now. Would you rather be able to speak every language in the world 
or be able to talk to animals? Oh, that is a serious and very tough question. I think <laughs> <laughs> I think I would go with every language, although talking to animals would be cool. But I, I, I spend a lot of time in the water and talking to animals underwater would be hard. So I'll go with people, sort of all of the languages. What's your what's your favorite holiday? So I am also a person who enjoys, probably what will resonate you, I enjoy spending time outside. And so my favorite holiday is actually sort of like the times that I had during summer vacations. So I like, I tend to gravitate towards like when summer rolls around, like I just want to be outside. I don't want to be indoors at all. And I think that that is something I've just kind of carried forward. So like any long weekend during the summers when I can be outside doing something, I'm incredibly appreciative. Scale of one to 10, how good of a driver are you? I think I probably used to be like an eight. Now I'm probably like a seven or six as I get older, but like- Losing a little patience. A little bit. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm getting older and maybe a little bit more sloppy, but yeah. And I think probably other people may describe my number differently than I describe myself. So I'm trying to balance that a little bit. Fill in the blank, please. Uh, something wise your elders taught you was? When I was going to design school, I had a, a sort of a person who I met with who was an old like madman style ad guy. And his whole thing was like, if you want to be good at what you do, like it's particularly in the advertising world, spend as much time doing other things as you do doing the design stuff. And so you kind of rebuild that breadth. And that was probably the wisest thing and most pivotal thing, because I ended up sort of doing any number of other things than sort of that, whatever that chosen thing was. Um, so I think that's probably the, the wisest thing. I love that. Actually, I saw you mention that and there was a keynote that you gave online. And that was the one quote that I wrote down is, if you want to be a great designer, spend as much time learning about other things which I also, as I zoomed out of that, I'm like, wow, that applies to so many amazing things. Yeah, and it was a really cool perspective, so. And I think it's also like more relevant now than it ever has been, right? As like the world becomes more complex and we're bringing in sort of views from around the world as well as sort of like any number of microcosms in terms of our cultures and so on, like we need to have a broader view. And, uh, and so I think it really holds true now. Would you choose to have invisibility or super strength? I think probably super strength. I think invisibility, you just end up being like, there'll be a lot of like sketchy stuff that people accuse you of. It would just be not a good sign, right? Like smart man, a lot more left to the imagination. Yeah, I'll go with super strength. You can hide that better. Yeah, yeah, Got it. Okay. Is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers? If the animal crackers are made of animals, probably. Otherwise, no. I think I'll just go with the, the straightforward animal crackers and say, you know, why not? Okay. If you weren't leading design at Fjord, what would you be doing? I mean, aspirationally, I would uh, sort of goes back to sort of like being outside all the time, doing something sort of in the water. But I think realistically, I'd probably be something like a librarian. Like I, I kind of love writing and editing encyclopedias, sort of that notion of like gathering information and sort of like packaging it back up again would be very appealing to me. I love that. Okay, cool. What is your least favorite marketing buzzword? Oh man, I don't even know. I mean, I, uh, <laughs> I may have to pass on that one. I, I mean, it's like, there are so many and like, I think we're in a world, we're awash in sort of like marketing phrases and so on being used as almost purpose statements. But yeah, I don't even know. I mean, that's a, that's a really hard one. Okay. <laughs> There's so many. Yeah. Okay. Um, what would you go back and tell you, what would you go back and tell your younger self about being a design leader? It goes a little bit back to that sort of like looking further afield. I think that um, I would probably go back to when I was a younger designer and remind myself that like even the things that I was studying, you know, the field that I'm in is vastly different than the field that I went to school for or what I thought I was going to be doing in a sense. Like the, the world has changed and what we're designing for didn't exist as consideration sets in the past. And so I think a lot of it would just be like stay flexible, right? And, 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 and recognize that it is a journey and things will be constantly changing. It's such an honor because I get 
some amazing human beings that, that come on this show, right? Marketing leaders at the highest level and a lot of up and comers as well. And not all of them mention this word curiosity. And so, but some do. And I find that all of them are amazing and have their strengths. And for me, I'm bullish on curiosity because as I reflect on my career, of just personally and professionally, how curiosity has just been the through line for me. And it's been really one of the superpowers. And I love that you mentioned curiosity. I think it's so important to remember that. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, we, we try and foster sort of here, certainly a, what we would consider a learning culture where people are always like continuously learning. Yeah, life is too short and there's such an amazing world out there to sort of experience. So, What are you kind of in the vein of learning and, and exploring things like what are you learning about now? I think we're all learning. So we just finished our sort of 2022 trends and launched those. And sort of in the process of, of learning, we said we spent the last you know six months prior to launch kind of putting together what those things are. And in that, I mean, there's certainly the, the world of the metaverse and things like that and sort of like what's happening in technology is a, a large part of, of that. I think there's also a really interesting thing around sort of like the social cultural side of things that we're starting to pick up. And that's been obviously happening for a while, kind of globally, but but sort of this notion of, we saw this, I guess I should say, actually, even a, a number of years ago in things like healthcare, but sort of like mental health and how that kind of comes sort of into play and sort of how we're not just kind of these embodied, you know, one-offs. So I'm, I'm learning about all of that stuff. I'm also like personally really intrigued by how we can derive things from naturally occurring systems into things like our sustainability practices and so on as well as sort of uh, the, the proliferation and sort of scaling of purpose in organizations. So like the interesting thing about like what the part of the business that I'm in, which is more on the sort of product service side of, of the house in a sense, is that you're always learning about sort of like what businesses are, are trying to do and then sort of what people's perceptions of those are. And then what are the sort of prevailing wins sort of socially and culturally? And you're trying to sort of triangulate all of these things. Um, and employ a lens of technology and so on and all of that. And so, yeah, it doesn't stop, but it feels like the requirements around sort of like learning are just increasing, like as well as process shifts and things like that, like the desire for impact faster and so on. So it's a little exhausting right now in that regard, but there's a lot going on. Did you find, you know, as you reflect over the past couple of years when everything really clearly started shifting, did you find a lot of brands turning to Fjord, turning to you for insight, for kind of guidance, wisdom? Because I think a lot of brands we're trying to figure it out, a lot of internal conversations, sometimes reaching outside. Like, what was your general sense of how certainly the brands that you worked with are just brands at large? Like, did they come to you in, in the time of like, okay, what's happening in design now? Help us out now. What was interesting is that we had started to see that that turn in terms of the questions people were answering even before the pandemic began. So there was this kind of notion of sort of there's obviously there had been an, a period of acceleration. There was uh, there were questions around even sort of like what we might consider things like truth and how brands connect with people in different ways, sort of an emergence of things like sustainability and so on that had already hit. And then we were starting to see, we might consider almost like atomization of cultures. And so sort of, a you know, definitely sort of like demarcation across different cultural groups in ways that we hadn't seen before. So companies were coming to us and they were asking us about everything from how do they talk to their workforce, which sounds very familiar now, to sort of like how do they live with or work with the individuals that they serve as a brand and sort of go work with them over time, right? So like how do you sort of essentially become a ride along or in healthcare, it's called a care advocate, somebody who like works with you as you, you go through an experience. Then the pandemic hit and like all of a sudden we were, people were bringing us, they were almost questions of acceleration. So like, hey, we've got this thing we were thinking about, but like our business has disappeared overnight. Like how do we move into that world? 
Then there was a period and sort of like, how do we remap things around us? Um, and now it's really about sort of like, how do we rebuild kind of the connections with people in that way? Back at a sort of, you know, past places I worked at, we used to talk a lot about like the future of projects, which was kind of like, what is the future of this or that? You know, the future of TV, the future of media entertainment, the future of cooking and things like that. Like I still, to some degree, track things the same way. We had a lot of future of work projects, like two years. First, we had return to work projects when it felt like things were going to taper through. Then we got sort of like future of work. And now it's more about like, how do you cement principles, values into your existing workflow? Uh, and I think that that's just a recognition, honestly, culturally. And I think it speaks to what you're asking, which is that we've gone from a state of sort of, we're going to go back. So how do we sort of like get back our systems when we go back to work or back into sort of like dealing with customers in a more general way? Then sort of what is the future of that? potentially look like. And now it's kind of like, well, we've got these systems, these de facto systems that we've built and in a relatively ad hoc way. And now how do we take what is working and sort of discard the things that aren't and sort of construct a system out of that? So I think, I mean, it, it's been an interesting transition. So I think that the answer is yes, there have been increasingly there are companies coming to ask us those sort of existential questions but in a very impact, like, how do I save my business right now way? And now increasingly for the future, but the nature of the questions has shifted over time. Can you give an example of maybe, you know, a business, if you can mention a brand, that's cool. Or just, you don't have to mention names, but just an example of like a use case, a recent use case where they came to you and you're able to help them in many ways, kind of cement that value prop. Without mentioning names, one of our increasing um, areas of, of client engagement or people coming to, to ask us about things is really thinking about how do you tell the story of purpose over interactions with people? And so that like that is based around often the fact that sort of culture is moving faster than organizations are able to answer. And so they have to go back and say, like, what are our essential truths? What are the things that we believe in? And then how do we deploy our marketing, you know, brand product lines against those against sort of the things that are keep coming up, sort of the waves that keep hitting us. So we've been doing a fair amount of work actually recently, sort of looking at that sort of the, the core value proposition, the brand proposition that people have, and then thinking about how it becomes more agile or more of a living system through all of the touch points that they they have with them. And that really does speak to like, as I mentioned before, sort of in healthcare, a, a lot of work that we're doing, which is essentially as somebody goes through a treatment, sort of how does the system articulate itself around them so that they feel like they have they're getting personal care as well as the fact that their, you know, their care teams and so on are connected to them. So we're seeing a lot of like kind of a gestalt, like a lot of work that's happening across North America and globally that's of that same, or characterize it that same way, which is sort of how do brands become more tightly entwined at a one-to-one -one level serving the people that they serve, but then also how do they still maintain sort of a global or at least North America stance or wherever it might be in terms of what they stand for so that they can appeal to the most people at once. So that sort of dichotomy is a thing that we're we're seeing a lot of across all of our work. How has like DE&I informed design from your perspective in working with some brands? It manifestly. So on both sides. So there's, uh, I think it's actually really wonderful. So it's now becoming for a lot of the brands that we work with sort of a core, if not differentiated, it's a core way that they're looking even at metrics. So we're seeing CEOs being measured and, and CMOs and others being measured based on DE&I standards. We're also, and I, I find this incredibly heartening, even in the way that we communicate with our clients on internal decks, certainly on things that go externally, a much higher level of scrutiny over things like representation, uh, sort of even in the imagery that we use at every level. It's actually nice to see when something slips through and it doesn't have sort of enough representation even in the imagery and like somebody on the client side will call us out for that. So it's becoming something that we're, we're sort of hyper aware of. 
it's also, I should say, with our client organizations, we're able to carry a much stronger message now around, you know, if you're designing something for a population, the people that should be working on that solution inside your organization and inside ours should be more representative of that of that population, as well as uh, on the client side, we're seeing a, a greater desire to do more research into groups. And so really sort of think about their segmentation differently. You know, it's been it's been very interesting over the last two, three years to see maybe a little longer now to see sort of like that realization that brands aren't monolithic and they don't, they're not just there for the multitude of people. But if you can serve people who are typically underserved, you'll still appeal to that core group, but you're actually, you're just, you're helping people more across the board and you're creating more accessible services. Again, I think you and, you know, the folks there, if you were sitting at a really interesting intersection, you know, helping brands in many ways tell the story in the right way. And, and that's really cool to have that, that input and output ability to, to kind of shape, to really you're shaping a lot of how the world is, you know, how we're seeing each other, right? Through through these brands, interacting with these brands. So that's beautiful. Well, I think that's true. And I think it is, I mean, that's a, it's kind of a clarion call to brands as well, in the sense that they are in many ways responsible for sort of like how people see the world. And I think that that's something that we've kind of run into more and more on the, both on the good and the bad in terms of the sort of the dramas that are around certain brands. But I think a lot of it is that like, this notion that sort of as a service designer in particular, when you think about sort of designing or an experience, people recognize services and experiences through the sort of the physical and digital touch points that they encounter. So like we deal with sort of theory and we deal with sort of relatively complex stuff relatively badly, but we tend to relate it to moments, right? And so there are no throwaway moments in an experience that you create is the sort of the the thinking. But I think for brands in particular, things like how does that, like I'm looking across and there's a, a bag of chips next to me, like how does that bag of chips tell the story of your, your brand writ large and all of the service points that you have. And how does it tell the story of, to your point, DEI? And like, you are the touch point that is sort of deciding and to some degree defining the cultures that you live in. And it's a, a new responsibility, I think, for brands to, to see things that way. And I think it changes what a CMO's job is. I think it changes what a you know, product person's job is inside those organizations. And it changes the organization of the companies. Yeah. What are marketing leaders asking you? Like, what are CMOs asking you now about design and how they think about design? And if they're not, what should they be asking you about design in 2022? You know, we often sort of on my side of the house will come to CMOs often through sort of like a more of the product side sometimes, right? And then we sort of, we have conversations with CMOs. There's more of a notion of sort of less campaignable ideas and more sort of longitudinal sort of like ideas or ways of working is becoming a bigger thing. So when we think about sort of islands of content or islands of experience, and it's more about sort of like how a CMO or others can interconnect parts of their business together to sort of come across with sort of essentially a whole cloth offering so that every piece of their organization sort of is marching to the same drum and we're not optimizing every singular piece as, as its own. We're having conversations with CMOs that that sort of almost verge on organizational change conversations, which is a sort of the another part of, of what we're seeing a lot of which is just a, a lot of organizations and particularly sort of older organizations, they're just, they're not optimized to build cross service, you know, products and services. They typically operate in business units and the CMO may own one of those, but they don't necessarily talk to each other. And so they sort of, there's a little bit of a rat race as they all try and sort of like make each one of their pieces better rather than sort of the whole. So the CMOs, I think are the, the ones who are looking further forwards are looking at like, what are other venues for storytelling? Obviously, we're getting questions sort of like, what does the metaverse mean to us and, and sort of all of those things, but which I think is representing sort of new channels. I think we're getting a lot of 
like how do we connect with people differently in a more meaningful way? What does marketing mean in a world where sustainability becomes a, a centerpiece or where you know DNI becomes a larger play or we're looking at like triple bottom line and things like that? Can you name any brands that that are getting experience with their de- like design correctly in your opinion? Like are there brands? I know there's some that we know of. Apple and some of these others, but just curious your just perspective on some brands getting this right now in this time period. The Apple example is the one that we've always used. I mean, I think that the worlds like Google are doing a good job. I mean, in the sense that they own so many touch points. I mean, it is a little bit of a tricky one. I think Nike has done a good job in terms of they have gone from being sort of a, a manufacturer of, of product and, and there's parts of the organization that still think this way, but I think that they have done a really good job of becoming more of an advocate for a culture in a sense. And they sort of, and they're carrying their sort of like sustainability and DEI and all those things together through that because they're having to answer deeper questions than they may have in the past. And they're reacting to a culture that's constantly shifting. So they're, they're doing a really good job in it. I think brands like Walmart are doing well in the sense that they, you know, there are these, these mega brands that have gotten a good handle on sort of the physical digital divide, they're there with and understand their, I mean, Walmart is famous for, you know, they serve everyone and they they take everyone into consideration. So they're doing a good job of sort of really, you know, dealing with the full stack of, of, of the folks that they serve. What's interesting about it to some degree is it it is a lot of those bigger, older, what we would consider older brands that are doing that really well. They're, they're brands that have already migrated from sort of selling a single product in a sense, like in a, a more startup mentality and, and sort of like digging more deeply into sort of a broader offering and reconciling that and then adjusting to it. What would you say is your relationship with failure at this point in your career, having been exposed to so many things, worked with so many cool people, worked with some great brands? What's your relationship with failure like now? I mean, personally, I'm wrong. I have this equation that I think I'm wrong probably 50% of the time, like maybe 25% of the time, like I hope that I'm right, but I may be wrong. And then like 25% of the time, I feel like I really nailed it and I'm probably right. At this point in my life, at this point in my career, in the world that we're in, I think we're in a place of like trying things faster and expecting to fail more, right? And so like, because you know that sort of if you can fail cheaply more often then you're going to get the big, the answer that you get right is going to be the bigger answer. And so that 50% of being wrong isn't, it's not a sort of an end game and it's not sort of the end of the conversation. It just means that you keep talking, right? And you sort of like, you, you keep having those things. I think the more interesting thing on failure is a, a big part of my work in the past is the the notion of sort of like uh, fixing failure is a big thing, right? So we know we're going to, brands know they're going to fail. We know we're going to fail as, as as individuals. And when you look at it from a customer experience perspective, you know, you're going to have missteps with a customer. The, the, the idea isn't that you fail and then you just stop the conversation. The idea is that you fail and you make right, right? So like, and I think this is true with a lot of the brands, especially on the marketing side that we've seen a lot of missteps some brands compound that and they sort of, they throw up their hands and they kind of, they move on. The brands that seem to do really well are the ones that sort of in the right time frame answer and then course correct are the ones where um, where success comes. And I, I spent a lot of time in and around theme parks, sort of in, in a part of my career doing design in that space. And a lot of our conversations were like the equivalent of if a ride goes down and somebody has a bad experience, like how do you lift that experience? Because we also know from the way that people perceive things that you could be doing fine, you have a bad experience, it'll drop. But if somebody saves that experience, it increases brand affinity or it increases your sort of, you know, your desire to care, your proclivity to, to experience a good time. And so not advocating creating sort of like failure points, but that arc we know is an arc. And so being really sort of uh, mindful of 
if you fail, here's the way to, to think about sort of like how to make that right actually has a lift on the business perspective as well. So I'm pretty familiar with failure. I like to think that we do better after the failure in a sense, or we learn from our mistakes. A lot of brands, you know, we the chances connect with on many of our shows, we've got, you know, 20 shows in our network and they're all various business shows. And it's interesting to hear how some of the brands are doubling down on customer experience and just through your lens of design and, and intelligent design and experience. Are there some examples or some things you've noticed in this, in the way that brands are, are really kind of doubling down on, on CX and this kind of new world we're living in? Customer experience is a really interesting one because there have always been brands that have excelled at it, as it were, right? And then a lot of brands, uh, for, and I think for a lot of brands, it was considered almost like a, an overhead that they had a hard time tracking. Having spent a fair amount of time in sort of like Disney and other theme parks, like customer experience has always been, is always sort of a centerpiece of, of what creates that sort of that win. And in particular, the relationship often between sort of a consumer and a person who's sort of like helping them creating essentially in the customer experience is that connection, that human connection, I think that that often sort of turns the tide. Well, there's two things to that. One is we've seen a lot of smaller brands do really well on the customer experience or the, the semblance of that. I think the growth of Peloton in the last couple of years where you're dealing with sort of a one to few kind of a relationship, even if it isn't entirely personal, like there's a human being on the other side that you can identify with or aspire to be, right? Has created a really fantastic facsimile of that. With that, I think where it gets really interesting and where I think the brands that are doing better and not creating sort of almost clippy-like experiences where they've been been able to do is like really thinking about sort of like how AI can scale at a conversational design level. So like I tend to think of design, this is going to sound a little airy-fairy, but I tend to think of experience design and sort of the creation of customer experiences. It should mimic a human conversation or a human interaction, which is to say like, and it is kind of, it sounds kind of almost comical, but like when a brand meets a person for the first time, a lot of times what happens is akin to when two people would meet and one person would tell the other person their life story the very first time they had met them, right? So it's kind of like, my name is Nick and I da 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 And like that typically creates almost a fight or flight moment because you're like, your instinct is to be like, this person is weird. There's something wrong with them. They're telling me way too much. Like, A, I don't need to know all this information right now. And like, and I don't know how to process it even if I did to something that is more of a human relationship, which is that, you know, based on my ability to control the conversation, we sort of, we impact or give each other more information over time. And, you know, we could use the term progressive disclosure for that, right? Progressive disclosure over time. The brands that are doing customer experience really well are ones that are sort of utilizing, I think, progressive disclosure conversationally over time to grow affinity. And that goes back to what we were talking about before on the CMO questions. It's less about like, how do I just get in front of people and like give them the message? And it's more about how do I collaborate with somebody in order for them to achieve what it is that they want to achieve that I'm not going to dictate in a sense, but I'll be along for the ride. I'm seeing in healthcare, there are a number of brands that are sort of like, that are living into this well, because they've had to based on rule changes in their industry. But you're seeing a lot more of that sort of participation on both sides or almost co-creation to some degree of an answer that brands are doing that is that is better when you get to, to that category. Yeah, we had the CEO of Live Person on another show that I host, and we had their CMO on on this show. And the things that they're doing in that conversational AI world with brands, it's got some elegance to it that I think I think they're I think they're getting it right in many ways. And it's been cool to, to see some of the things unfolding there. Okay, so the Drum.com had a really interesting article about the power of cult brands. Uh, they said, "quote When consumers talk about brands, it helps them contribute to their own sense of individuality and allows them to connect with their tribes. How do you, Nick, 
think a brand can really build that tribe and give their customers a sense of individuality? I think cult brands have long been a thing. Um, I did my grad school work on sort of the rise of essentially the change of identity after sort of things like fashion became a material culture became sort of atomized a little bit. And so this stuff is, is all very close to my heart. I think two things. Um, I think we have to be careful with the word tribe because tribe has, has connotations in different places. So like as we, one of the things that we're thinking about in this is kind of like, what is the terminology we can carry forwards? Knowing that the, the terms like tribe, right? Like tribe is a, a generally a problematic term for a lot of folks for good reasons. But then the other thing about like the sort of the power of cult brands is really interesting is it speaks to sort of people's need to believe in a certain thing or sort of have a certain purpose or communicate their purpose more with other folks. It's not dissimilar to sort of when you think about sort of, you know, back in the day wearing a spike belt with a bunch of other clothes and it sort of communicates your affinity to a subculture or whatever that might be. I think a, a lot of it is sort of what I think about cult brands is how do you how do you place them adjacent to or next to or around other sort of like better known brands. We see this a lot in, in fashion, for example, sort of uh, collaborations between larger brands, like say a Gucci and sort of an individual designer who lives in a, in a periphery. We're also seeing it, I think in a sense, in the sort of the cult brand world around like uh, influencer culture and things like that, where you're seeing individuals now being partnered with like larger scale brands so that you can win off of both the cult, the smaller sort of like heavier beliefs, as well as the larger, the larger groups that people are, are working with. So. I think cult brands actually just kind of, they implicitly give that sense of individuality or contribute to it, the individuality. And they can, in a sense, actually the, the echo effect of a cult brand plus a larger, more established brand can probably give that larger brand more of a sense of identity that they may be missing otherwise. So it's, allow, it's a ways them to, it allows them to play around the periphery of who they are in a way they might not have been able to do beforehand. Solid. Okay, cool. Next one we have, um, the headline reads, McDonald's discovers the golden ticket to making money in the metaverse. Uh, McDonald's recently filed applications with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to expand into, quote, virtual food and beverage sector. They're also entering the metaverse to offer patrons another way to order food, real food, uh, for delivery online to its customers' real homes. What are your thoughts on these companies kind of entering the metaverse so heavily without really knowing about its long-term success? Like, do you think it's a smart move? Any thoughts on that? I think it's something that they probably feel rightly that they're obligated to do uh, to some degree. I mean, I don't think it's... So this example, actually, it's interesting. There's an artist called Tom Sachs, who uh, sort of like famous for almost like handmade pastiche versions of sort of uh, things like NASA work and so on. I mean, he's a really interesting guy. And he has a new project that he just launched that it's about sort of like he's selling an NFT of a rocket that you build yourself. And then he will he build a real version of the rocket fly the rocket, video the rocket, and then you as the owner of the, the, the sort of package of goods gets the rocket NFT that you've built yourself, customized the real rocket in a plexiglass case, and then a video of the rocket flying. So like it's that kind of like the combination of multiple things together that makes it really interesting. I think in the case of McDonald's, I think I think they're kind of doing it the same way, which is that like, it's not just about sort of like this virtualization, it's virtualization to make the real world experience better. It's the real world sort of like making the, the, the sort of metaverse more interesting. And I think that that's where, when we talk about people just jumping in wholesale and just living in one space, I think that's less interesting than creating sort of that, a virtuous cycle or sort of a some level of flywheel around sort of virtual and physical and experiential services. 
So many mic drops, Nick, in this conversation, man. I wish I had a mic drop button that I could just press. <laughs> just, just, you were just a really cool uh, spring of knowledge, man. And uh, thank you. I knew that you were going to bring your your baller skills to this, but you did not disappoint, man. This is incredible. Uh, my pleasure. It's my pleasure to be here. It's fun. Yeah. I'd love your thoughts on this. You know, in the late 90s, Steve Jobs said, start with customer experience and work backward. Is this still accurate today? Agree? Disagree? Still agree. I still agree. Start with customer experience. I, I would even push it one step further. There's a guy named Eero Saarinen, Eli Saarinen, who are like Cranbrook architects and designers. They did the TWA terminal in JFK, the St. Louis Arch, and a bunch of other things. And they're thinking, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's basically like, if you want to design a chair design the table. If you want to design a table, design the room. If you want to design a room, you have to design the house and you have to design all the way up to the city. And so it's basically about context. And so I think like what Steve Jobs was talking about was the need to think about people in that. And people are the through line in terms of the things that they're designing and they are the context. But now I think increasingly we're even thinking about, so we've talked about cultures and subcultures. We're thinking about the subcultures that people are a part of. their are larger, larger context. And so the environments that they're in as well. So I think Steve Jobs was right, and that was a product-centric way of looking at it. And now at an environmental way, we're looking at what he was saying and we're extrapolating out even further. Nick, this was exceptional, man. Thanks so much for being here. I know that there are a lot of marketing leaders that are going to you know, really consider the things that you're sharing. It's exactly our intent to having you on as you want to share from brilliance like you. So thank you for being here. This was awesome. Absolutely my pleasure. Anytime. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers, to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.